Hey guys, Bear Grylls here just to say super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember above all, never give up. Now I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. So those first two minutes, the thrust is incredible, and you're bumping like a violent, crazy dump truck driving down a dirt road. Lots of low, high-frequency bumping. That was something that I had no preparation for. That was Navy SEAL and NASA astronaut Chris Cassidy, and it's time for Great Adventures. So Chris, pleasure to chat with you today. I'd love to hear about the first time that entered into your mind the idea of going to space. Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I, I was not a young guy with space shuttle models and glow-in-the-dark stars on my ceiling. I'm really just a kid playing sports in a small town in Maine, joining the Navy, getting to the Naval Academy. And uh, during that time, even then, as 18 through 22, while I was in college, a career in space was not anything that I had thought about. Entered the SEAL teams, and through walking the pathway through the SEAL teams is when I met Bill Shepard, who was the first SEAL astronaut. That's what sparked my interest. It sparked my curiosity. Oh, oh, well, if he was selected, my background is sort of like his, similar to his. Maybe there's a chance for me as well. And that's how I, I got interested in to actually apply. Like, where's the website, the forms, how often, when do you have to have the deadline by, how many references do I need? All that's like nitty gritty details. So I was probably 25 or 26 years old when all that happened. Talking to Bill obviously is a huge accomplishment. There are a lot less Navy SEALs that have been to space that have you know, served beside you. I guess, what was the appeal? It was more about the adventure of it. I saw spacewalking and thought, wow, that looks really cool. Without knowing much else about the job, you know, certainly I'd watched rocket launches before. I'd never really thought about what it would be like to be a person inside the rocket. And I certainly didn't give any thought to oh, that is just a small moment of an astronaut's career. There's a whole lot of time where you're doing a normal job, a technical job, exciting job, but still a job like many others, more of an engineering kind of role at, in supporting missions that are ongoing. And so once I learned about the whole package, it, it really intrigued me. I thought this is a good fit for me because I, I like doing the operational things like I came from in the SEAL teams. But I also, I like to know how things work. I like to figure things out. I like to understand the technical nature of stuff. So this, the job as an astronaut covers all those things. You've done a, a few missions uh, over your career. What were those early things that you heard 
you know, that's stuck in your mind as you were preparing to go to space for the first time, you know, things that you were ready to sort of gut check, any of the challenges that you foresaw that really stuck in your head as you were anticipating that first flight? So with anything that you, you've never done before, you, you seek advice or input from those that have done it prior who have that experience. And that is absolutely the case on your first space mission. We have a small office. We all know each other. And, and so you spend time picking the brains of, of the experienced astronauts. We've flown, flown astronauts and uh, have lunch with them during training sessions. Hey, why did you do it this way? Did, well, how come you don't approach it here? And, uh, and really trying to get into the details of it. Through that process, you're told about what things are pitfalls, what things to look out for, what things the simulator does perfectly and what things the simulator cannot possibly get you ready for, like the thundering roar of the engines lighting off or the shake as you go from staging with one engine stopping and another engine starting or re-entering. All these things are experiences of, in and of themselves. And just being ready for them is something that you have to experience or at least have some sort of knowledge what is going to happen. Like we all have little note cards on our kneeboard and you write things like, okay, at three minutes and 40 seconds into the launch, it be ready for this or whatever. And all that comes from experience. Absolutely. Take me into that first mission, if you don't mind. Obviously, there's a lot of training. There's a lot of preparation that went into that first day, that first launch. What were you feeling? What was it like putting the suit on? And, and what was going on in, in your stomach or your minds uh, as you entered the craft? So on my first mission, crazily enough, we had five days where we thought we were launching and didn't. We didn't launch until the sixth launch attempt, which it's hard to picture what that's like to go through. But I tell school kids, imagine every morning uh, for six days in a row, your parents tell you that tomorrow is Christmas Day. And then you wake up and they're like, ah, no, go back to bed. It's not going to be today. It's going to be on Thursday eventually you don't really believe it. So when I woke up on the sixth day, which ultimately was the day we launched, there was gray clouds in the sky. It didn't really feel real. I just was kind of going through the motions. But every single time when you get out of that, the van that drives you from the suit up building out to the launch pad and you get up and you look up at the rocket and you see the steam coming off and hear the energy that's kind of stored in that thing, you realize, wow, this is something special and and it uh, doesn't matter if we're going or not. It's still amazing to be at this point right here. It's incredible. Did you have friends or family that were there to, to watch the launches? I think we discussed last time that I grew up very close to where you grew up in Maine. I made the trip a few times. Did you have people there? Were there people that were excited or, or worried or concerned with your first launch? Absolutely, yes. We On the shuttle, each crew member got 250 launch guest tickets, and everyone ha has no problem filling out those when you, you, when you do your immediate family and then extended family and then friends from other aspects of your life. In fact, it's, it's sometimes hard to keep it less than 250. Ironically enough, as each one of those launch delays happened, people had to go back to work or they couldn't stay or their plane tickets were going to be too costly to change. And so in the end, when I finally launched, I think there was something like 15 people out of my original 250 that, that were still there 
watching it. But nonetheless, everybody else was tuned in on the TV and uh, and watching with excitement. And, and that is a, a feeling that's pretty special when you're sitting in the spacecraft, knowing that everybody you care about in the world is watching you. And some people that you don't care about are still watching. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Millions. So now take me into being strapped in. You mentioned the thunderous roar, the propulsion. What were the things that you felt as you left Earth? So this is on my first mission, which was as, was a shuttle, as we're talking about. And, and the space shuttle has the big external orange fuel tank and then two white solid rocket motors attached to the orange tank. And then the shuttle is bolted to the outside edge of the whole assembly. And the first two minutes of the launch, the bulk of the thrust comes from those white solid rocket motors. They're called solid rocket motors because the fuel is solid. It looks and feels like a pencil eraser. You can poke it. There's no, there's no valve to turn off the fuel to cut the engine off if there's a problem. And it burns a little bumpy. So those first two minutes, the thrust is incredible and you're bumping like a violent, crazy dump truck driving down a dirt road really fast. Lots of low, high-frequency bumping. And if you, if you tried to write something on your kneeboard, you wouldn't be able to read it. It's all chicken scratch. That was something that, an example of something the simulator had no preparation. I had no preparation for. And I remember looking over at the shuttle commander, this guy named Mark Polanski, and I was thinking, okay, this is pretty crazy. Is, does he think this is normal? If, if he was just cool as a cucumber, and I could tell it was in, exactly normal, and then I was okay. And then at the end of this, those two minutes, the solid rocket motors fell off. They got burnt, expended and fell off. And then all of a sudden, it was completely smooth, like just a smoothly well-trimmed vehicle driving down the highway, not a bump to be found as we spent the last six and a half minutes uh, on the shuttle main engines. Can you tell me about the first time you got a view of Earth from space? That, that first time was on that same ride to space. Now the shuttle engines cut off. And my job was to unstrap myself, take my helmet off, my gloves off, and grab a big camera and take very, very detailed zoomed-in pictures of the of the external fuel tank, that orange tank. Those pictures were critical because if we found that chunks of foam were missing from the tank, we needed to be worried that those chunks of foam had hit the shuttle and therefore were a potential danger for us on reentry. And if that was the case, we might need to repair the shuttle. So, so I had this job, which I knew was of critical import to the mission, and so I did exactly that. I was taking the pictures and all of a sudden I looked my head over the edge of the camera and I saw earth. I was so focused on this tank. And then I realized that there's a whole earth behind the tank and we were over Europe and only about 20 minutes earlier where we sitting on a launch pad in Florida. And I thought, wow, that was pretty fast. Never before have I gone from Florida to Europe in 20 minutes. So quite incredible. Amazing. I know you spent a, a good amount of time on the ISS, International Space Station. I'd love to just hear about your first experience entering the ISS, meeting the people there. What was that experience like? Getting to the space station, the, our shuttle mission went to the space station, but we only stayed for two weeks long. 
And living on the space station is entirely different. It becomes your home. And uh, I like to tell people, imagine when you go to a vacation rental home, you don't know all the nuances of how the DVD player is wired and what input it's on, or you don't know the sprinkler system and you don't you don't know when the air filters were changed in the air conditioning unit. But in your own home, you know all those things. You know what inputs are on HDMI 1, 2, and 3, and you know when you got to replace your air conditioning filters. And that's what it's like living on board the space station for six months. It feels like you're home. You can float by something and you hear something that doesn't sound right, and instantly you know that it's not right. And it's a whole different level of feeling and pride when you get to this point. Can you explain your first, I guess, interpretation or experience of the community that is the ISS and the international community that is the ISS? Yeah. In fact, the best way to do that is on my first mission, which was the shuttle mission. We had on our seven people launching, there were six Americans and a Canadian astronaut, Julie Payette. And then we got to the space station and there There was a European astronaut on board. There were a couple Russian astronauts on board and a Japanese astronaut. And and so right away, in the the first couple meals I had on board the space station, we had members of all of the international partners that comprise the space station program. We're sitting around the table eating meals, and uh, it really hit me just how much of an international endeavor this project is. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. Their American rye is perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. What would it be like to wake up on the ISS and take me through some of the general events you might go through? The most recent mission I was on last year was different in that most of the mission, it was there was just three of us on board, myself and two Russian cosmonauts. The space station is largely segmented. The forward part of the space station is all the U.S., European, and Japanese modules. And the aft part of the space station is the Russian portion of the space station. And the cosmonauts, They take care of all the maintenance and science experiments on the Russian side and the U.S. astronauts. We take care of all the maintenance and science on the U.S. side. Well, I was the only American up there. So for large chunks of the day, I was by myself. Now, with just three of us, we we would float down and say good morning and say hi and have coffee together. But by and large, I ate my meals separately, just because it was easier than carrying all my food down to one end or them carrying all their food down to, we would just eat separate and then join each other for dessert or coffee or something. But waking up when you're all alone on the one, a whole half of the space station can be a little eerie. I remember floating out of my crew quarters and the space station being pitch dark and, uh, and thinking, holy cow, I'm like floating 250 miles above the earth going five miles a second in this pitch dark spacecraft. Now, fortunately, we have a, an unseen crew member, and that's the Mission Control Center in Houston. They are keeping an eye on, on all of the things for us, all the safety aspects of the station and, and calling us if we need to take any action right away. 
So you're never alone, but it can be quite an eerie feeling when you turn the lights on and off and, uh, and go to bed. At a certain point, you spent quite a bit of time there. When you first wake up, do you immediately know I'm waking up in space or is there a realization period? It comes and goes. I think at the start of your career or in the first week of your first mission, you just can't even believe it, that you're finally here. You've applied to be an astronaut. You've been selected as an astronaut. You've trained as a basic candidate. And now you're trained for this mission. And finally, you're here. And you're waking up and doing the tasks that you've been preparing for. And that's a little bit mind-blowing. I don't think we ever get totally desensitized to that, even in your second, third, or fourth missions. But every now and then, you have to stop and think, wow, how lucky am I to be here, have this view out the window, to be representing our nation in this capacity. It's, it's pretty a pretty special thing. When you wake up, what's the first thing you do? I'm guessing unstrap. And then do you eat first? Do you have your coffee? Is there a, a standard protocol for that morning? You pee, which creates tomorrow's coffee. We have the recycling machine works really, really well. You can't tell that the urine and sweaty t-shirts are all cap, all that moisture is captured and we recycle it. But that's a critically important technical aspect of future space exploration is not having to carry every drop of water with you when you can recycle a great deal of it. Uh, so yeah, trip to the bathroom, just like you do uh, on earth, figure out what that day involves. And, and if it's a busy day, you probably know that from the night before and you might dive right into something. But in general, we get up, use the restroom, eat a little bit, have a coffee or tea or whatever you like to do. And, uh, do a little bit of reading ahead for the day, like the procedures that you're going to do. Some of the activities are highly coordinated with the ground or some other location, like with a science, science researcher. And so we do a little prep work so, so that we understand what's expected of us on, in that given day. And then you just jump right into it. And there's a computer program that plots out all your daily tasks and you just start chipping away at them. Some tasks we know we can just do anytime we want because there's no special timing needed. But other tasks are very specifically timed, maybe to a communication satellite or a point in the orbit or with the scientists on the ground. Uh, and so we need to do those right on time. And so you kind of get in this rhythm of, of getting your work done and, and when to take a break, understand that you can take a break or when your break would be detrimental to the overall coordination of the day, that sort of thing. From where you sleep, where is the computer located? We have a computer, a work computer, right in our sleeping quarters. So you wake up, turn the lights on, or not even turn the lights on. You can open your computer and answer email or, or pre-read for the day right there in your bed. There's computers all over the space station, and they're all connected to an, an intranet on board, which the data is fed from the Mission Control Center computer network. We do have a separate computer that you can access the regular internet. I find it to not be as robust and fast as what we're used to, so I didn't really use that that often. There are laptops throughout the space station, and now we have tablets as well. And so most people are just carrying the tablet around with them and accessing all the same information. I know physical fitness, wellness, all those things are, are pretty important to you. Generally, again, what point of the day would that happen? Is it at the behest of whatever your tasks are, or is there an ideal time for that kind of work? 
So there's only one weight machine, and that machine becomes really the, the linchpin of the exercise day. And the ground team will schedule each person their block of an hour and a half on, on the weight machine. And when I was there this past time, there was, like I mentioned, there was only three of us. So it really didn't matter when we did it. I preferred to do mine, regardless of what was on the schedule. I tried to always do mine in the morning. Sometimes my jobs, my tasks wouldn't allow me to do it first thing in the morning, but generally tried to just get it out of the way. But for instance, on the station right now, there are seven crew members and everybody needs to do the weight program every single day. So they, those folks, and I was just talking to my friend Shane Kimbrough, they have to get on the machine exactly at the right time and be off at exactly the prescribed time. Otherwise, they screw up everybody else after them. During this last trip, did you have any time for entertainment or anything, books, movies, television? Yeah, we, we have busy days, but in general, there's always a little bit of time at the end of the day before while you're winding down for bed or uh, Saturdays are kind of a three-quarter day. We'll, we'll clean the space station and do any remaining jobs that didn't get done Monday through Friday. But Sunday usually is unscheduled, and the purpose of it is to rest and recover and be ready for the next week. So anytime during those gaps, there's always time to do something on your own, read a book, watch a movie. A lot of times we call friends and family or just look out the window. I preferred to do things there that I couldn't do on Earth. I mean, I can read books here on Earth. I can watch movies here on Earth. Um, that's not to say that I didn't read or I never watched TV. And it's all recorded TV, by the way. It's not live TV. But for the most part, I got all my excitement out of just looking out, out, out the window. For the shows or, or books that did, you know, movies that did make it through, what was one that sticks out in your mind from this last trip that maybe you enjoyed in particular. Yellowstone. I watched the series. The show the series. with uh, Costner. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. What would your dinner consist of regularly? Would you go over to the to Russia side or they come to you? Do you guys go 50-50? How'd that play out? Yeah. The way our crew did it is every Friday night was our group dinner and we would alternate hosting one Friday I would have the two Russians down and I, I would prepare all the food and they just had to show up with a spoon. And then my turn, I would go down there and I would just show up with a spoon. But during the work week, it was just, you're just too busy to take the big time like that. And I would generally eat uh, some sort of protein. Chicken strips and salsa was one of my favorites. Uh, seafood gumbo was one of my favorites. Uh, lots of good side dishes, vegetables and different other types of sides. And then usually I would, after I ate the bulk of my food, I would uh, grab a bag of tea and, and zip down to the Russian end and just say hi and see how their day was in 10, 15 minutes, hang out as a crew and then, and then go back. The time zone matters too. At nighttime, so we live on Greenwich Mean Time, so like London time. So nighttime on board the space station, dinner time on the space station is like midnight in Russia. And it's around noon in Houston. So it was too late for the cosmonauts to call home after dinner. But for us, for U.S. astronauts, that's the perfect time to call your friends and family is right after dinner. So that kind of throws a wrench into the crew hanging out as well. It's the managing of your day that is an interesting aspect. It's a team of people that populate the data on the computer for your daily plan. There's often tasks that don't go as scheduled. 
And this is where I think you'd, you'd find it really interesting. And in, you learn to take, to make little efficiencies and make really good use of five minutes. And that's one thing I, I took away from my time and space is use a five minute block to get little things done or a half of a little thing done and then finish it up after or some other time. And then that's how you can kind of stay ahead of the day. But it can be pretty mentally fatiguing to have somebody else planning every minute of your day for six months. I imagine, I imagine going to sleep. Was there any ritual or routine you would do before you go to bed or what was your circumstances of falling asleep? I'd fall asleep pretty quick. It takes some, it takes a little bit of, of getting, getting used to. Um, but in general, you are just, you're pretty tired by the end of the day and you're ready to wind down. You don't realize how many little LED lights are, are on all of the electronics that we have. Every little LED light on your computer, every little LED light on whatever, it makes your small sleeping quarters kind of bright. So I, I never on earth sleep with one of those little eye things that goes over your eyes, but in space I, I would. And that was one of my, that was my little trick rather than putting tape, because you can put duct tape on every single LED light, but that gets a little trying and annoying. You're looking at the earth, you're appreciating that. Was there any other star or celestial body that you love to look at while you were out there? In general, I would say no. Most of my focus was looking back at earth. Occasionally, I would look off at the stars and see, but that didn't intrigue me as much as earth did. How did it feel to return back to earth for your final mission? A whole bunch of emotions. This could be my last time I ever experienced space and wanting to appreciate every every minute of it. But then you're also excited to see your friends and family and your loved ones. Uh, so there's just lots of emotions wrapped up with coming back. But in general, Earth is your home. And as cool as space is, it's always cool to get back. The sun came up, the world began to shake.